This is KMTT. The week begins this uh, winter, Tavshin Ein, with a shiur by Harav Benjamin Tavori, a series, weekly series, on uh, modern responsa of the 20th century, more or less, both the individual and the and the topic. Harav Benjamin Tavori. This week we will deal with Shelot Tshuvot of Harav Gedalia Felder, the author of Yisodei Yeshurun. I assume that the people that we've discussed in previous talks about Tshuvos of the 20th century were more familiar with many of the listeners. We mentioned personages as Rav Kook, and uh, Rav Herzog and Rav Goren, the uh, Swedish, Rav Chaim Ozer. But Rav Gedalia Felder was a major figure in Canada in the years between 1940 and 1970. He was born in, ni- in 1921 in Poland and came to America after having learned in yeshiva in Krakow. He came to Canada and he learned in with Rev Price, also a leading figure in Canadian Jewry, Canadian Rabbinics. Rev Price was a Talmud of the Chelkas Yawav, and Rabbi Felder was one of the Talmidim of Rav Price, who became what is known as a Talmid Chaver, a student of Rav Price, who then became a colleague of Rav Price in Toronto. Rabbi Felder became a rabbi at a rather young age in various communities which were far-flung, way away from the main centers of uh, Jewish life. He was a rav in a place called Sarnia, a place called Bellevue in Canada, Ontario. And there he influenced many, many people. The communities there did not have many Shomer Shabbos. And I personally met people that were influenced by Felder and became Shomer Shabbos. In fact, some of them had children who were my students who became Rabbanim in later years. While he was in Toronto, after serving in various communities and actually serving in the Canadian Army as a chaplain, Rafelder came to Toronto in 1949, where he became the Rav of a shul called Shamir Shabbos. He stayed in that shul until he passed away in 1991, and his son is now the Rav of that shul in Toronto. He also taught in the local schools. But his main greatness was in the area of Psak. He instituted Kashrus in Toronto in such a fashion that everyone respected his authority. His erudition was known 
to encompass all kinds of sources, as we'll mention a little later. He was a member of the Besden of America, although he's living in Canada, and he was a very prolific author. He wrote a series of Svarim on Arachayim, which show remarkable Bekiyas, explaining daily life from Volume 1 to Volume 6, from the beginning of the Shulchan Aruch, Arachayim, almost to the end, where he discussed all issues of Arachayim laws. He also wrote a book, a Sefer, on Nachlas Tzvi, of, called Nachlas Tzvi, which was on the laws of Gerus, the laws of adoption. He had correspondence with many, many Gedolei Israel over the world, who, whose letters are printed in some of the volumes that Rafelda printed, and sometimes you see in their volumes, in other Gedolim, letters that were addressed to Rabbi, to Rabbi Felder. The reason I chose Rabbi Felder today was partly because of my personal relationship with him. The years that I spent in Toronto, I, I became very close with Rabbi Felder. I actually had a regular Seder with him that Thursday afternoon I used to come to his house and spend the afternoon with him. The other reason that I chose Rabbi Felder is because in his volume called She'ilat Yishurun, there are a number of questions and issues that occurred in America, or in his case in Canada, in those years. Questions that I, and discussions that I really remember from my childhood, and read the descriptions of types of situations that occurred in America in those years, in let's say 1950 or so, which I remember occurring in, in, in America. So let us deal now with some of those tshuvas. The very first tshuva of the, of the Sheila Sishuron deals with an issue that seems to be of relative little interest and importance, or actually that I can't find that was as brought, brought up as much in earlier literature than seems to be the case in America and Canada in the mid-20th century. And the question was, building a new shul when another shul already exists. In Bava Basra, there's a whole discussion about competition, what's considered fair competition, what's considered unfair competition, to own a, if you can open a grocery store next to someone else's grocery store. And here the question was asked by a specific community who wanted to, who did have a shul. And they had their own community with their own customs, but the neighborhood in which they lived was, uh, became a neighborhood where Jews felt they should move to another community. And anyone who's familiar with America, Canada in those years know that there were always communities where once upon a time there were Jews and then 
the Jews moved out of that community was taken over by other elements. Uh, Harlem, for example, in the uh, New York uh, mind, is a neighborhood that's not associated today with the world of Judaism. And well, maybe t- I, I really don't even know today what's happening. I can talk about the the 1960, 1970, when Harlem was a place where Jews avoided even stepping foot near Harlem. But once upon a time, Harlem was a main Jewish community. There, there were big shuls in Harlem. Uh, the Chazen Yassel Rosenblatt, the famous Chazen, had a a position in a famous shul in Harlem. Then, this particular shul, the community moved, and the community and the, the the members of the community moved to a new neighborhood. But in the new neighborhood, there was already a big shul, and the question was, could they build another shul in that community? The their reasons for doing so were many, and they explained that they wanted the Davin Svart, and the other shul Davin. Ashkenaz. Another reason was the other shul had certain what they called modern customs, which again we might talk about, but they did not want these modern customs in their shul. For example, in the other shul they announced the pages in English and the speeches were in English. And this new shul wanted to abolish, to make sure they did not announce pages at all. And also that the Yidrasha should be in Yiddish. The, another reason was proposed was they have their own minhagim, their own masora, their own traditions. I assume that means they have their own balit fila and everything else. And they didn't want to change what they were used to. The old shul had a very high membership tax. The dues were very high. The reason the dues were very high in the shul that existed was because it was a a beautiful shul which also had a um, a, a hall uh, all kinds of rooms for various for various functions we remember in those days at least I remember from those days that the shul was a place where people used to have bingo games people used to come and uh, I assume they weren't done in the main what they called the main sanctuary, but they did have uh, all kinds of activities going on in the shul. To maintain the building, there was a an important, um, uh, uh, quite a sum of money for uh, dues. And the last reason that they proposed for building the new shul is because they said this comes from previous world, from the world, I guess, in Europe, where they had their customs, and they want to keep European customs and not adopt American customs. In order to answer the question, Rabbi Felder, first of all, discussed the idea of building a shul in general. Is there a mitzvah to build a shul? Is a mitzvah the raisa? Is it a mitzvah the rabbanan? Exactly what is the, the, uh, the mitzvah to build a shul? But after doing that, after speaking about the mitzvah building a shul, he talks also about when you can coerce people to participate in community fund in in establishing community funds or kupot. But then, the point that I find quite interesting in terms of America in those days, Rabbi Felder describes what an American shul is. At least it's a seems to be a description of life in Ontario and Toronto 
at that particular time. He said there is no general kihila. Each shul in the city is his own community with their own cemetery and burial rites. That became a very important part of Jewish life. In order to make sure a person would be buried properly in a Jewish cemetery, very often a person had to be a member of a certain shul which had burial rites somewhere in the community. Rabbi Felder points out also that each shul has its own local rabbi who was chosen by the members of the shul and he receives a salary from them, which was is, of course, different than we can imagine life was in Europe. Or for that matter, it would be interesting to see the concept of the rabbinate as it develops today in Israel. In, um, in, in Canada, says Rabbi Felder, the, there was a general fund of the community, and anyone who's a member of the shul it has certain rights. But a person who has no standing, who is not a member of the shul, has no rights. He can't vote. In fact, he can't even come into the shul to daven on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur unless you're a member of the of the, that particular shul and or someone who paid for a seat. Now, that almost reminds us of the famous American joke that a a person was uh, wanted to come into the shul and on Rosh Hashanah Kippur. So a policeman stopped him at the door and he said to him, you, you can't come in. So he said, but I have to speak to somebody. I didn't come to Davin. I have to send something. So the policeman said, okay, we'll let you in, but with the condition that you promise me that you won't pray inside, that you won't Davin inside. All these functions of the shul, of the local shul, caused Rabbi Felder to, first of all, analyze the situation in previous years, in previous customs. And then he said, basically the din is found in a rivash. The rivash says that anyone who stops anybody from building a shul in a place, even in a place where a shul already exists, is considered as a person who holds people back from fulfilling mitzvahs. And in fact, such a person should be scolded. And this is one of the things that the Rambam said, you should actually put a person in Nidui, who would stop people from building a shul. So, the argument of the other shul, the established shul, was that they might cause them a loss. What loss would they cause them? Well, new members won't join. Rabbi Felder explains why that's not considered a loss according to Din. So therefore, Rabbi Felder decided and paskined, and in fact, we know the shuls that were built in Toronto based on this psak. Rabbi Felder said, the people can move to the new community, can build a new shul, there's no problem of losus godedu. There's no problem of hasogas kvul. On the other hand, there's a mitzvah to keep their customs, the customs of their fathers, alti tosh mecha, and therefore, you certainly can build a shul. The 
Rivash added one point that Rabbi Felder did not quote, and there may be a reason why he did not quote it. In the Rivash, in Tshuva Reshnun Gimel, the Rivash at the end of the Tshuva, it's a very short Tshuva, but at the end of the Tshuva, the Rivash says, You said that people want to stop people from building a shul, you should silence them, you should scold them. But then at the end he said, if the people who have the existing shul have a good reason, and they're afraid the original Bet Knesset will be destroyed, then the community should check into the facts and should make a takana to work out both shuls. Now, Rabbi Felder did not add this point. Perhaps the issue wasn't the first shul collapsing, it's just a question of they wanted more money, more people to daven there. The other point is the Shulchan Aruch did not add this point. The Shulchan Aruch in Choshem Mishpat did quote this Rivash and exactly what he said, that you cannot stop someone from building a shul, although the other original shul exists, but he also, the Rivash, the Shulchan Aruch did not quote that point that if they claim there's going to be a major, major problem, the community should investigate, check into it, and make a takana. It's Rabbi Kiva Eger in the Shulchan Aruch does quote that point, does add it, but maybe in the situation in which they saw in Canada at that time, did not have a problem of the other shul being destroyed, chas v'shalom. This question of building a shul in another community is obviously a major issue all over America, all over Canada, where there's a tremendous proliferation of shuls in uh, various Jewish communities. When I lived in Borough Park in the mid-60s, I think they counted up there were 70 shuls in, in Borough Park at the time. Today, I, I think there must be triple that amount. Uh, at least, there probably is at least one or two shtiblach on almost every single street in Borough Park, and Borough Park has expanded greatly. So the tshuva, if whether you really can do this and how much this hurts other people, is a very important tshuva in that world. Another discussion that Rabbi Felder had would be a question of which was of relevance specifically after the Holocaust. When we liberated people from various places in Europe and we also found a lot of things that were taken away from Jews. Specifically, I'm talking about Sefer Torah, Devei Kedusha. They were found in the house, in the homes, in establishments of non-Jews. And many Sefer Torah, many Tefillin were taken and returned to the Jewish community. The question of the money to whom they be- these objects belong is a major issue that was raised in different sources, 
In fact, if you remember the case of the Sotheby auction, it was well known that they auctioned off uh, art that was taken from the Holocaust. There were issues to whom these paintings actually belonged. But the issue that we're going to discuss, that Rafael discusses in this particular tshuva, is if you buy a Sefer Torah from a non-Jew, or you don't even buy it, but you get a Sefer Torah somehow from a non-Jew, can you assume that the Sefer Torah was written properly, Alpidin, and you can use that Sefer Torah for all practical purposes, and we say it'll have Kedusha Sefer Torah, or would we say we don't know the origin of the Sefer Torah? Maybe, in fact, a non-Jew wrote it. Maybe an Apikaris wrote it. How do you know who wrote a Sefer Torah when you have no history of this particular Sefer Torah? Rabbi Felder discussed this question in Sheilas Yishurun, and he referred that he himself had mentioned this point in his book, Yisodei Yishurun, and he only elaborated upon this issue in the in the in the Sheilat Yeshua. So his discussion in Simon Chavzayin Chavzayin was about a number of issues. One, can you read in the Sefer Torah that's puzzle? Let's assume it is puzzle. Can you read in the Sefer Torah that's puzzle? Now, he quoted an opinion of the Rambam. It's a very famous opinion of the Rambam that when absolutely necessary, you can use a Sefer Torah which is puzzle. The question is this considered a regular, uh, just a Sefer Torah's puzzle? I would think that a Sefer Torah puzzle that the Ram was referring to was, meant a Sefer Torah that letters were missing or something. But a Sefer Torah that was really written by a non-Jew, is that considered the same thing? But be that as it may, Rabbi Felder then also discussed the Psak of the Shulchan Aruch, which seems to contradict itself. The Shulchan Aruch in Yeredeya brings two opinions about a Sefer Torah which was found by a non-Jew. One opinion, yes, you can use it, and the other, no, it must be put away in Geniza. The people who say you can use it assume that the Rof, most people, most Sefer Torah were written by proper Jews. Other people feel that the Sefer Torah cannot be used and we can only conjecture why they don't follow Rove. In, in fact, Rabbi Felder said in one place it might be even just a Chumrah that was put not to use it because we're not 100% sure. I mentioned that there seems to be a somewhat of a contradiction because in Hilchus Tfilin, the Shulchan Aruch ruled that if you find tefillin in the hands of a non-Jew, you can use them, and there is no, uh, there are there are no diverse opinions in Hilchos Tefillin, whereas in, Shulch- in Hilchos Sefer Torah, he did bring different opinions. So the commentaries have raised the issue, 
and say that Tefillin seems more likely that was written by a proper Jew because a non-Jew is not interested in Tefillin. He would not write Tefillin. But perhaps, let's say for Torah, he would have written. So, Tefillin are less of a problem. The, however, other Achronim think that there should be no distinction between Tefillin and a Sefer Torah. At the end, Rabbi Feldi said, since it's only a Chumrah, and it's really a miyut. And he explains it's only a chashash to Rabbanan, and he refers you to the source, uh, the source that I mentioned before. He doesn't uh, explain it specifically, but he just mentions that uh, other people who he quotes have raised the issue that a Sefer Torah, which is puzzle, has uh, could be used in times of need. So at the end, Rafelder permits using the Sefer Torah. But what is very interesting, and is maybe a, a, a little bit of a, a, a curious point about a person who was educated mostly in, well, actually a combination of learning in Krakow, coming to America as an immigrant, and becoming and well-known as a, a Talmud Chacham in, 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 in Toronto, when he read words that seemed to be English. When you read the, the Yisoda Yeshurun, Rav Felder quotes that Rav Kook was asked this question. And Rav Kook was asked in Das Kohen, number Kuf Ayin Aleph, when a Sefer Torah was taken from, now, taken from whom? When I read the Yisoda Yeshurun, and this was this is part of the discussion that's engendered by the Sheilat Yeshurun. So, I found that he quotes this tshuva of Rav, of Rav Kook, and he says, Sefer Torah shenikach miyad nochim bevatikam. Now, I was a little shocked when I read it. He, he t- says that Rav Kook raised the issue of a Sefer Torah that was taken from Jews from non-Jews, I'm sorry, from non-Jews in the Vatican. The Vatican gave away Sefer Torah? The Vatican sold Sefer Torah? Did Jews prove to the Vatican who owned those Sefer Torah? So, it could be that historically it's true. But then I went to look up the tshuva of Rav Kook, and in the tshuva of Rav Kook, interestingly enough, it says in that shuva that he quoted number kuf ayin aleph. The question was asked about a sefer Torah that was bought from non-Jews in an auction, and Rav Kook spelled the word auction aleph vav kuf tet yud aleph nun, which would I would read somehow today as baatkian. Apparently, Rabbi Felder read that as not bought at an auction, but bought from the Vatican. Would it actually make a difference? Well, Rabbi Felder points out that in the Vatican, nobody wrote a Sefer Torah. The Baruch Shalok Katvoto, says Rafelder. 
they obviously did not write a Sefer Torah. Well, it's true that the seller at the at the at the at the auction certainly didn't sell the Sefer Torah. Is that what Rabbi Felder meant when he said in the Vatican they didn't write the Sefer Torah? Maybe it's only a misprint, and and uh, he meant an auction. But I, I I just found it interesting that the bottom line is that Rabbi Felder permits using the Sefer Torah. Rav Cook in his tshuva also permitted using the Sefer Torah. However, he suggested that it only be sent to a shul which did not have a real Sefer Torah, or at least had a pro- real problem with the Sefer Torah. Because then he said there would be another reason to add to the Kula, namely, namely the reason of the Rambam that he quoted that a Sefer Torah, which is uh, in puzzle, can also be used when absolutely necessary. So, So the tshuva of Rabbi Felder permitted use of the Sefer Torah, but without the comment of Rav Kook that it should only be used in dire necessity. The last question I want to bring up also very briefly because uh, time is running out, but it's just typical of America in that generation. The question was asked to Rabbi Felder, can you have, can you celebrate a 50th wedding anniversary? There was a custom to celebrate 50th anniversary, which this custom exists today, but apparently there were many people who actually held a wedding ceremony on their 50th anniversary, and some put up a chuppah, and some actually made the brachas. Rav Felder points out that some of the people made the brachas with the name of Hashem, and some say some just mentioned uh, the bracha, like probably they would say, uh, Baruch uh, Baruch Yotzer Adam, Baruch Mesamei whatever it is, without saying the name of Hashem. So the question of making the brachas, of course, is rejected out of hand. Rabbi Felder explained that that's a bracha levatala, and there's no there's no reason for it. To put up the chuppah on that particular day, Rabbi Felder also rejected and mentioned that there is a chukos hagoyim to somehow have another wedding ceremony after the original wedding ceremony. As I mentioned before, Rav, Rav Felder's uh, Bikias, his wealth of knowledge is really extraordinary. In this particular tshuva, uh, he found that there was a tshuva that's printed in a volume that came out in memory of, uh, or in honor of a Rabbi Kraus, who Sefer HaYovel for Rabbi Kraus, and the tshuva was quoted there by Ksav, from a Ksav Yad, from, a, from one of the Rishonim, a very impressive Bikiyos in all kinds of literature. And that uh, that tshuva said clearly that there was such an issue, and it's a, actually a problem of Bechuk Koseyem to have a chuppah, a, another type of wedding ceremony. Rabbi Felder also added that it would be a question that some people might raise about the original wedding ceremony. Unfortunately, this is also a well-known phenomena that we find in shuvos of our generation, that many people were married in one form of ceremony, later on became ba'alei tshuva, and now are worried whether the original ceremony was valid, and sometimes we have to perform another 
wedding, and you have to know what to do and how to handle such a situation. But in the case where there was certainly a valid wedding, to put up a chuppah 50 years later might lead people to to give a uh, to raise the issue whether the original wedding was valid and which would create a stigma on the children of such a uh, of such a union and on the whole uh, 50 years they lived together so rabbi father strongly discouraged the idea of having the chuppah so let's point out again the brachas are aser. the chuppah he strongly uh, advised against and said there might be an issue of bechukoseim as well as this issue of stigma. As far as actually celebrating the 50th anniversary, Rabbi Felder quotes the sources of people who celebrated their 60th birthday. Now the 60th birthday was considered an unusual, unusually important event because of certain, uh, perhaps almost Kabbalistic reasons, perhaps reasons based on sources that the person who lives to 60 has uh, avoided certain punishments that chas v'sham could be inflicted on a person. We also know that to make a siyum, uh, when you finish a masachet, is a sudas mitzvah. So we have seen occasions for ceremonies. Rav Felder is willing to elaborate upon that and say, yes, anytime such a, a, a milestone occurs, it would be appropriate. And he encourages people to make such a celebration. And he quotes the Yamshel Shlomo on Bavakama, who says that any occasion such as a siyum or a bar mitzvah, whatever occasion that you would like to do, should be, should contain an element of a Torah, an element of singing shirim v'tishbachot to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and then, says the Yamshel Shlomo, it automatically is a, is a sudas mitzvah. So he did encourage wedding anniversaries based on the concept of a 60th birthday and siyumim. And he said, Divrei Torah and Shirim V'tishbachot HaKadosh would be appropriate to say at that time. And then it becomes a sudas mitzvah.